0: Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for July 2019. I'm one of the editors of the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by two editors, writers and academics, who also spent years as editors of Senses of Cinema, the wonderful Dan Edwards and the incredible Tim O'Farrell. Welcome to both of you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Mark. Mark. Yeah, you... D- did I over-egg it? Did I... <laughs> 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 That's fine. <laughs> yeah, happy with the over Uh Kirsten's away this month. She's romping around the world doing something wonderful in the academic world. Uh, she'll be back again next month. Um, so for today, you've got us. Uh, which is a great thing. I hasten to it. On this month's show, we're looking at Bong Joon-ho's latest palm door winning film, Parasite, in which a young Korean man from a poor family poses as an English tutor to the wealthy family of his young female student And the experience opens up opportunities and discoveries for both families in very surprising fashion. Uh, We're then going to move on to the films of Peter Strickland, who is the focus for our dossier published on Senses of Cinema at the moment. And finally, we'll discuss the Melbourne International Film Festival, which kicks off in a little over a week. Uh, And Dan, Tim and I will work our way through some of the best of the festival. We will end, as always, with recommendations for the month of July. And in our bonus segment, which could be a contentious one, um, for patrons of Sensors of Cinema, we're going to be discussing Martin Scorsese's Bob Dylan documentary, Rolling Thunder Review, and that'll be a discussion involving two really diehard Dylan nerds in Tim and Dan, and one who has almost zero interest in him, uh, and that would be me. So that will be fun. They, there will be mocking and abuse, I don't doubt. But anyway, let's get things underway. Parasite is Bong Joon-ho's palm door winning film, and it tells the story of two families. One is desperately poor and headed by Kim Ki-tec, is played by Song Kang-ho, and the other is the wealthy Park family, who hire Kim's son ki or he becomes later known as Kevin, who is played by Choi Woo-shik, to tutor their teenage daughter in English. Over time, Kim's family finds a way to exploit the Park family's wealth, slowly encroaching on their domestic territory and feeding off the Park family's incredible gullibility. Much of the film plays, I thought, as a dark heist film. It's really comedic and gleeful in its examination of class and wealth. But it's fair to say that the film also has a subterranean darkness uh, that makes the film, and I use the word subterranean deliberately, that makes the film far more surprising than the film initially presents. So Dan not to put too fine a point on it. I know you're a fan of the bong.
1: Um, what did you think of parasite? Yes, I am a fan of the bong. there's nothing I like more than deeply. Um, I love this film actually. Um, his last film, Okja, which was yeah. done uh, just for Netflix, um, I think we were talking about this, Mark. You quite liked that. That was a little too cutesy for my taste. I loved how cutesy and, that film was. Yeah, it just kind of irritated me. Yeah, um, that's because you have no heart. But... Yeah, true. Um, but I thought uh, Parasite was a really great yeah, return to form. And I think if you like um, Bong Joon Ho's work generally, I think you're going to love Parasite. Yeah. You know, he really, um, all the things I love about his work, this film really captured nicely. He's got that very kind of keen sense of um, commercialism. You know, he's an incredibly successful filmmaker commercially uh, in Korea. In particular, the host, I think, is still one of the highest-grossing yep. films of all time in South Korea. And it's worth um, mentioning that I read recently that I think now,
0: in Australia at least, that Parasite is the most successful Korean film ever. Um, oh, already? So, yeah. yeah. Wow. So it's actually overtaken, I think, train Globally to... or in, in Australia? No, in Australia. In Australia, right. Um, and it's overtaken Train to Busan. Right. Um, as the most successful Korean film. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that I find most interesting about him, that he does these really kind of intelligent, smart films that are still incredibly commercially engaging. Mm. Tim,
2: how did you... Oh, I loved it as well. I yep. think he's a master of so many different aspects of filmmaking. I think the plotting and characterisation and the way that the characters develop is incredible in this film, and I know we're restricted... For spoiler reasons from yeah, going into to too much away, detail about yeah. the twist, but um, it really is commanding the way that those characters are plotted through the film. I think, you know, production design and setting, the way the sharp relief that he throws between the two families, one mm. in this sort of minimalist. Modernist, you know, mansion which is just uncluttered house and is remarkable, exactly. Like,
0: yeah,
1: it's like that's,
2: that's a do character a whole in itself, thing
1: yeah, just on the houses, exactly. it's amazing.
0: like
2: a
1: stage, for yeah. This, yeah, a particular lifestyle, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but that character that one is so inward looking and enclosed, and mm. the other one, literally, as you said, that's one of the subterranean aspects, yeah. They're a couple. But the other house that the Kims live in is completely opened up, you know, they've got people pissing outside their window, they're yeah. deluged with sewage during a you know, yeah, in a scene that leads, includes one of the greatest moments uh, in cinema history, I think, when the daughter, Jessica, is sitting on a toilet. Oh, it's yes. right. Has there ever been a better sitting yeah. on a toilet scene in the history of the yeah. cinema? It's amazing. And so the the settings, the production design, characterization. there's so many aspects of this film in which you know it's moving into switching genre territory and moving into sort of satirical moments, but it's still a film that has a heart, a beat, and really does mean something and pulls the rug out from your feet so yeah. so mm. you know, so many times. It's 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 I, great. And I mean, it's not, I, oh, sorry, yeah. I was just gonna
1: say it's not even one of the things I like about love about uh, his work is the twists are not just at the plot level, but yeah. the way the mood you yes. yeah. can shift the mood with like, you know, even mid scene from uh something that's quite comedic yeah. to by the end of the scene you're just kind of like, Whoa Yeah. <laughs> and it I'm not even quite sure how he does it, but he can turn that mood like yeah See, just I, I, of I deliberately went into it knowing
0: almost nothing yeah. um which I'm so glad that I did but I was sort of surprised I'm like oh this is like this goofy little heist film and I found it incredibly funny um just yes. as the as the the Kim family start to kind of inveigle their way into the Park family, you know, first the the son becomes the tutor to one child, then the then his sister, who takes on the name Jessica, takes over with the the other boy, who is the artistic genius, <laughs> and is obsessed with the American Indian, um, always living in a teepee, uh, and there's this whole uh, capacity for this family to slowly encroach on them, and it lends itself to all of this incredible comedy, as these these this family sort of just pretends that they're almost everything that they're not. And then, as you say, it starts to shift later on. And I didn't know whether as that shift occurs, as kind of more things about this house, the very wealthy house, um, are revealed. Did that kind of throw you at all? Because I I, I found that jarring and I loved it. But I could imagine somebody going, oh, this just went stupid because it felt like it was this film and now it's something else.
1: Yeah, I did. um, As I was watching it, I I saw it during the day um, at the cinema, so there weren't many people uh, in the audience. But I was kind of thinking about it in an Australian context. And presumably, given the film has been quite successful here, there's a lot of people seeing it who probably are not familiar uh, with his earlier work. And I did wonder how people here in Australia would kind of respond to it, because it is... At one level, you know, his films um, draw on certain kind of Hollywood tropes and, and so on. So at some level, they do have a lot of uh, familiar aspects, but he does, the way he kind of turns yeah. things is uh, something that's very particular to him, I think. But somehow he pulls it off and people seem to buy into it, obviously, because he's he is incredibly successful commercially. And, yeah. and this film has done well, you know, even outside the East Asia region absolutely
2: yeah i love those sort of tonal shifts that you were talking about i think as you say for the first 40 50 minutes i was laughing quite a lot yeah and then by the end of the film you know without giving anything away one of the main characters is talking about compulsively laughing in a situation that is not funny oh, at all yeah. and the, the ending i found quite amazing in terms of what it has to say about people's position and class and being stuck and where we're at you know it's um Again, we're a little bit restricted in what we can say. Yeah. But just simply to reiterate that the, the way it shifts by the end, particularly in relation to that humour, you realise how much you as an audience member have been, not sort of played because we're meant to think about yeah. it, but it it, show, it throws into sharp relief what's been happening in the first and half. Yeah. I mean,
0: I'm glad that you sort of alluded to that that notion of how the, the laughter shifts. because yeah. Because the, the second half still has laughter and a kind of really grim comedy. Yeah. But but it's a different kind of laughter. It's this, you know. It's it's not pleasurable anymore. It's frightening. Um, I freaking love that stuff. Um, what do, what do you reckon this film is saying about class? What I mean, this is a this is a film that's doing lots of stuff in terms of.
1: I guess Korean class. Now I don't know much about Korea, Dan. You might know a little bit more. Well, I mean, like a lot of East Asian societies, Korea is a place where you know there is um, very very stark. You know, wealth, mm-hmm. immense wealth, and there are people who, um, you know, are living, particularly, you know, in those urban areas, like kind of confined lives. And we yeah. see this in the film that, you know, are uh, probably hard uh, for people in Australia to really imagine the kind of spaces that people live in um, who are trapped in those kind of situations. But what I, I mean, it is interesting. One of the things I found interesting about this film is the way it's one of a whole string of recent yes. Korean films that are kind of obsessed with class. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Train to Busan is, is another, another one. one. Yeah. Snowpiercer, yes. um, one of Bong Joon-ho's yeah. earlier films, you know, is very unsubtly about class. Yeah. Um, even, you know, going back to The Host, um, had a lot of that stuff. Um, the Housemaid in 2010, another film, is a lot about, um, about class. So there is this kind of um, obsession with this kind of social divide in yeah. Korean cinema yeah. and the kind of... Um, the way that kind of erupts kind of, and I'm thinking of the toilet scene especially, (laughs) yeah, the way it kind of erupts into these kind of urban landscapes Um, and you know, The Host is another good example of this, where this thing kind of comes out of the river and there is this sense of um, yeah, this sort of subterranean horror beneath (laughs) all the kind of shiny consumerism yeah. in cities
2: like Absolutely. so. I, I would add uh, to the list, and I know you've seen this film as well, Burning, which has just been in yes, Melbourne yeah, recently yeah. as well. That's a classic. There's a lot of superficial similarities between the, these two films. I think that shares a cinematographer as well, but particularly that emphasis on class is front and centre. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, you know, some of the way... The denouement of that film, though um, <laughs> not similar in some ways, in terms of... Uh, where we're led to by the end of the film, mm. their similarities, and and it's interesting that those films, and even the film, given that this film we're talking about today is a, a Palm door winner, as I think Mark said at the yeah. beginning of in his introduction, we had the the year before this we had another Asian film, a Japanese film, Shoplifters, that one that also is dealing with a sort of uh, the themes of underclass. So there's a real sort of zeitgeisty element both to these films that are being made, but also that are being um, being garlanded, I suppose, in Western societies, which you know, sometimes you wonder about the way these sorts of things are received in different different cultures and why that occurs. But clearly, you know, it's it's emanating from from uh, issues that are playing out in yeah. in, um, in Japan and Korea in particular. But I'm yeah,
0: and I was really struck by, I mean, the the two films that as I was watching, it, one of them was Shoplifters. That that notion of family and poverty. Yeah and what people are prepared to do to try and raise themselves out of that poverty is super interesting and super fascinating um but uh the other one and i don't know whether you guys have seen this it reminded me very strongly of jordan peele's yeah film us um which does a similar thing in terms of class and issues of the kind of subterranean nature of of a lower class and and literally kind of physically separating the the wealthy from the poor um So, you know, I was watching this film and, like, is there finally a moment now? Because I've got a bit of a thing about class, maybe. And (laughs) and, and it's kind of like, you know, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and I'm scarred. Um, But it feels like now we are. and, And maybe it is a Korean thing, seen a few korean films maybe that's why it's making an impression on me but it feels like now this is a topic that people want to talk about um and i'm kind of fascinated by the fact that this is sort of moving into a moment where now we're getting films that are actually really engaging with concepts of class when you know maybe that hasn't been as much of a focus in the recent years class and competition i think the other thing especially in
1: the korean um films and again train to busan i mean was all about you know the competitive society um and the the intensity of the pressure to um, you know climb over everyone else to get to the top yeah. in uh, particularly in, you know those uh, East Asian societies but you know that's an ethos we've all been has been promoted to us all right in yeah. the world so and I think that's probably one of the reasons these films have resonated outside the setting in which they're they're made yeah. I mean one of my favorite um, aspects of train to busan was the fact that you know as the film progresses initially it's like the zombies against the guys who aren't zombies <laughs> yeah. but then it's the guys who aren't zombies start turning on yeah. each other in their <laughs> yes. desperation not to become yes. zombies and, yeah. um that kind of the intensity of that kind of competition and we see particularly in the second half of um parasite that is very much yeah. part of it as well without again spoiling the film um, yeah
2: I think *Parasite*. Another thing that's, while all that's happening, and there's very distinct class roles being explored, and people are behaving as you might expect if they're advantaged or not advantaged, it's there's almost a Renoir-esque. Um, you know, everybody has their reasons, and it's it, there's not there's not crude characterizations in terms of uh, nobody's a really bad guy, and mm. even the the uh, Kim family when they're, you know, we, our allegiance, we're clearly aligned with them in the first half of the film. You know, both in terms of being in their world, but also rooting for them, I suppose. But um, as well as them being generally, you know, we see them as a loving, supportive family. We also see what they do to inveigle their way yeah. into family, which involves and some. Some of it is b- brutal. It is right? brutal, yeah, and it's brutal, and it continues to be brutal when the twist happens with yeah. people literally uh, or metaphorically stepping on top of other people, or to, to get up to be yeah. elevated. You know, mm. so yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and it is one of those things that that idea of our our affiliation is with with the kim family but we do see how they destroy people's lives like yeah they're getting ahead but they're also completely screwing over there's a a housekeeper in in the the park family who really gets a bad deal the driver gets the 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 kind of chauffeur really gets screwed over yeah. in these really appalling ways and and we we ultimately come to understand that the kim family are basically just reducing these other people to the state that they're trying to climb out of.
2: Yeah, it's like um, a zero sum game, essentially. Yeah, exactly. You know, I gain, you lose.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, one of the you know questions at the end of the film is who is the parasite? Yeah. Who or what? Well,
0: is yeah, the parasite? yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. kind of everyone is yeah, ultimately. Yeah, everyone is. Um, but I, I, you know, that that sort of also connects to that what we're talking about this idea of the subterranean everything that's kind of underground. You know, this idea of of being the kind of the, the succubus you know, the thing that's just going to latch onto something and like take all of the goodness out of it um, and that just recurs the whole way through it um, even 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 with that wealthy family who are pretty appalling as well I mean is, isn't it fascinating that, that you start to see oh I understand that the Kim family are kind of doing these really terrible things um, but I have no sympathy for that Park family at yeah. all
2: because they're even though they're, not, na- but they're, not, they're nasty. not nasty they're you not know. nasty but they're like
0: you know you are a servant Mm. Yeah, well, they're they yeah.
2: conditioned to know their place as yeah. well. Exactly, <laughs> it's just yeah. superior. Yeah. yeah,
1: there's that great scene where the father is talking about, um, you know, the people who ride the subway oh, and the, yes. the particular and the smell they have. Yes, oh yes, yes. smell is great oh, in this how, film how too. Great is that? <laughs> One that of the things I really loved about the film actually was the performances yes. and um, Song Kang-ho, the, who's in um, most of Bong's films yes. and yes. has kind of become his kind of everyman yeah. and the hopeless father. He always plays the kind of dysfunctional father yeah. figure um, in his films and he was fantastic. His face yes. Thought, yes. Yeah, particularly agree. by the end, those, those some of those final scenes that he's in are, uh, Yeah, quite
0: remarkable. And I'd
1: and I, I give a shout out to, to the woman who played Mrs
0: Park. Mm. Um, yeah. I think yes. her name is Jo Yojong.
2: She,
0: she, she is absolutely hilarious. Like, she's an absolute killer comedically. Um, yeah. But, yeah, she's she's just an amazing character and an amazing actor. I just I really agreed. I love about. that
2: mangling. Those mangling of the English is fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. She's very funny, yeah. And the um,
1: way they nail kind of the, yeah, being types without ever being reduced to being no, types. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. still very,
0: absolutely. sort of, yeah. I think it's, it's fair to say that, that we're... One hundred percent in on this film um, it is obviously at least in australia it's it 's playing at the moment I know that it's played in a couple of other um, territories already um, if you haven't seen it, absolutely chase it down and if you want to add to this discussion about parasite and let us know what you thought of it we'd love to hear from you so you can head to our facebook uh, page at facebook.com slash of cinema and you can leave a comment there on our episode thread mm-hmm. This episode, you may have noticed, has been delayed somewhat as we waited for the release of the latest issue of Senses of Cinema, which features a dossier on the central spotlight in uh, this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, which is the cinema of Peter Strickland. Um, that dossier is now up and uh, published and ready for your eyeballs. Uh, so now is a good time, I think, for us to, to have a look at uh, the films of Peter Strickland. Uh, and he is, I believe, coming out to MIFF, and he's going to come and do a, a talk with uh, Alexandra Helen-Nicholas, who's a, a mutual friend of ours and an ex-editor of Senses. Um, and that dossier really does showcase some really incredible work, uh, writing on the work of Strickland. Um, so I believe they're screening all of his films, but In Fabric is the one that I don't think any of us have seen yet because that's that's still coming out. I think it has been released overseas, but I don't know that we've got it yet. But it, we did decide that we, we would take this opportunity to have a look at his back catalogue um, Tim, I reckon it's probably fair to say that Strickland is one of those filmmakers who's really connected to um, sensory experience yeah. and and all that sort of stuff. Indeed, there's a a really interesting article in the Strickland dossier upon senses at the moment by Drew Daniel that's looking at this idea of the kind of haptic vision um, of Strickland's film. Um, were your and I don't want to to get too particular about this, but how were your senses provoked um,
2: <laughs> by, by by his film? Nice segue. Um, I know. Uh, Look, I'm intrigued by a lot of um, Strickland's work. I don't love every one of his films, but um, uh, there's such a variety when you think about the fact that he's generally mining genres of different descriptions, so um, Rape Revenge in Catalan Varga, uh, Giallo in um, Barbarian Sound Studio... And, of course, in Jacob Bernadie, sort of softcore, eroticism, yeah. lesbian. Anybody who watches some of these films have been on SBS yeah. late at night. Uh, Vampirus Lesbos, yeah. or yeah. Um, yeah. I forget, there's a couple of others that I've watched over the years. And, you know, while lovingly attending to those genre elements and trappings, and there's a lot of details in all these films where we could talk about some of these, where um, he does mine the genres really well. He's always upending the conventions, and it's really—it's—he has an unusual take uh, in every one of them, on uh, the genre that he's exploring. And I think he's also—it's clear—a very un-British, yeah, you know, cliche terms, un-British director in that he's operating always outside of Britain, in Romania, uh, you know, or Italy, or yes. um, uh, where's the Duke of Burgundy set? I'm not sure. It's not it, really specified. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's unspecified, yeah. but it's it has a very Euro feel about it, which yeah. befits the sort of um, sort of films that he's uh, in some ways referring to. Yeah. But uh, uh, and I understand he lives in Hungary as well. But I find him a really interesting director who's really uh, formally as 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 you know on top of his game as anybody you would see. And really, the details, which we can talk about now, or you guys might want to have something to say about in these films, are uh, some of the most fascinating aspects.
1: Yeah. Dan? Yeah, I mean, they're beautifully constructed films, obviously. Um, you know, the I hadn't actually seen... I wasn't familiar with his work before viewing it, uh, some of the films for this segment. So I saw Barbarian Sound Studio and Duke of Burgundy. And um, there were definitely things I liked about the films... Um, one thing I really loved about both of them was the title sequence. The title oh, sequence yeah. of both yes. films yes. was yes. like... Yes, they are wonderful, thought, aren't they? Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, but ultimately, the films, I have to say, didn't do a lot for me. I do find him... Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff kind of going on aesthetically um, and visually and orally as well, uh, which is very kind of intriguing, beautiful... Um, but ultimately, I just didn't feel like the films were saying very much, yeah. and I did find them a little bit disappointing on that level. Especially Duke of Burgundy, I have to say, I found that ultimately a pretty hollow film. Right. Um, although the other thing I did like about it was the music um, by Cat's Eyes, which reminded me a lot of um, I don't know if you guys remember Saint Etienne. Yes. Um, oh yes. Yeah. The and again, like I love that kind of mood and the the. Music of the film kind of does work, you know, very beautifully with the images to evoke a certain mood. I didn't feel like it went beyond that mood very much. Yeah, more. I mean, I, I sort of, I think, had a bit of a similar response, although um,
0: I really, really loved Catelyn Varga. Um, I, I, That was the one that I that leapt off at me. I loved that to bits. thought it was tr- tremendous. Um, now Barbarian was one of those films where um, I saw what it was about and it's ticking every single box that I possess it's a kind of a, you know it's a kind of jello pastiche it's going to be really interested in sound and film construction um, it's going to be a little bit self referential and, and formal um, Toby Jones is, you know, I really love him as an actor like every single part of this is ticking all of the boxes and there are elements of that film that I like a lot but I don't like the film. I like the sequence where he, you know, shoots the watermelon. I like the bit where he has to cut up the cabbage. Like I like all of the kind of sound stuff, all of the, you know, the the um, the, the engagement with sound and uh, some of the other stuff that that, it, that plays around in the sound, not just in his construction um, of the sound for this jello that he's been called into um, to to the sound on. Um, so, it, kind of that that sensory element of barbarian I really liked and. Everything else, a little bit like you, I found that actually a little bit hollow. You really like Barbarian, though, yeah. I,
2: I love I love Barbarian, and I I like Catalan Varga a lot also. I, I understand why, uh, or well, I don't uh, maybe I don't understand why you really love Catalan Varga, but I guess um, in some ways it's. Um, the most restrained and straightforward and Spartan and less formally showy of yes. any of these films. It's, a, it's his first film. So I suppose in Embryo, hmm. it shows where he's heading. It has uh, similarities with the, the other films, though. It's very... Um, it's, it's clearly, uh, as I said, it's got the bones of a, a genre film uh, in this sort of relentless um, rape-revenge sort of structure... Uh, But where that where it leads us is somewhere completely different in a way, and 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 in common with the other films, it doesn't really push the more exploitative elements of the genres to uh, to the edge. In that you know it's not focused, he's not focused on violence or sex or any of the other elements that you might associate with the genres we've talked about. Uh, It's quite restrained, and the other ones are as well. Um, But I I think that film there's a huge emphasis on sound, as in all of the films. Clearly, I think Strickland is a musician as well as a filmmaker and he really pays... Sound is at the centre of all these films. And in Barbarian in particular, um, there are... Uh, sound boards as opposed to storyboards that we're seeing, or we're getting glimpses yeah, yeah. of these uh, sorts of things all the way through. And we have lovingly um, sort of tracking shots across uh, analog equipment. So, for people who are obsessed with uh, uh, filmmaking and, uh, you know, as well as particular genres that rely on, in this case, the Foley that yeah. you're talking about, or the sound like Shalo. You know, yeah. there, there's a richness there in terms of both the visual and also the referencing to to the genre. Um, I think he really stretches those formal elements almost to breaking point in um, in Barbarian, and mm. that also reflects the character's development as the character who is a sort of straight laced, very English. The Englishman uh, abroad, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Toby Jones, yeah. fantastic. He plays that very yeah. well. I mean, it's it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. amazing. Some of
1: these facial facial expressions in those scenes were the Italian crew and the producer are kind of arguing around him and he's just yeah, <laughs> looking yeah. at completely like, lost. Yeah. Like, What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. You've
2: got a split between this sort of really exploitative, sort of nasty environment within the film, uh, within the studio, which is reflected in the other films as well. A lot, a lot of the gender stuff is very reflected in the films as well. In, in this case, a male, sort of male, um yeah, almost with yeah. the Italians and a sort of repressed... Slightly downtrodden, very cliched English character who is corresponding with his mother back in England, who lives in England, sending him these lovely missives about the hatchlings in summer. Yes. And it's this—it's uh, there is humor in this film, uh, as well as a crazy sort of progression that's you know very explicitly references David Lynch and yep. you know experimental filmmakers yep. like Peter Chikasie and and you know he's he's. Acknowledged, I think quite often um, Strickland his his debt to um, a lot of the sort of uh, influences that we can see shining through in, in that film and others. So yeah, yeah. yeah I, I found it fascinating. Yeah. I
0: mean, I sort of walked away from *Barbarian* having a really kind of like the, the the sound of that film is so sort of resonant. Like it that stuck with me. Everything else I kind of dropped, um, but I sort of walk away and all I can think about is you know the 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 actors trying to do the ADR scream scream like trying ah, there wasn't a lot of there was some ah, great screaming in that film um, and that's really kind of amusing and and good fun and then him doing the alien spaceship with a light globe um, so all <laughs> of that kind of how he's kind of constructing these sounds and the, the perfection of some and the failure of others that stuff I really liked yeah. I wasn't crazy about the fact that by the end you know the film kind of folds in on itself and it, all gets a little bit clever pants and everybody's suddenly being kind of ADR'd in. And, yeah, I had not much patience for that, I must confess.
1: With both the films, I found there were a lot of moments, and I guess this is what you were saying, Mark, that I kind of, in the days following, I watched it kind of would come back to me um, and that, yeah, do stick with you. Yeah. But, yeah, like yourself, I just felt ultimately neither of them really kind of added up. Too yeah. much for me. Yeah, well, I think,
2: yeah, I think those the two later films, yeah, plotting and narr- narration narrative, aren't you know what they're about clearly. Mm. Um, it's much more so, although in a in a much more elemental way, in Catalan Varga, yeah. where there's a, a very strong generic structure that's followed, even though, as I said yeah. said some of, some of our expectations might be upset. But um, yeah, I I think with Barbarian, it's really interesting for me the way it ends up with uh, this. You know, it's He's trying to use these excessive formal means to, I suppose, mimic or get inside the psychology of the character, and uh, yeah, uh, for me, I, I quite like that, and I, I, I liked where we ended up, but um, I know well, plenty of people don't agree with
1: that. didn't find the character that interesting. I, I liked all the yeah. kind of you yeah. know Englishman abroad stuff early on, uh, or found it amusing, but ultimately I didn't find the character that yeah. interesting, so...
0: Whereas, you know, when I sat down with Catelyn Varga, which, as you say, it's not as formally kind of crazy as, as the later ones, I, I found that really involving and really captivating. And and the the thing about Barbarian and, you know, Duke of Burgundy, I think, is that it feels really enclosed. Everything's yes. so squished in. Mm. You're in a house, you're in really a studio. And, you know, Catelyn Varga is just the incredible breadth of these, um, these panoramic views of the Carpathian Mountains and yes. stuff like this. And it just feels like there's so much space. And the space is also creepy. Um, And even though, yeah, it's a kind of uh, rape-revenge film, as you say, it doesn't spend a lot of time dealing with sex. It doesn't spend a lot of time dealing with violence, although both of those things are are, are present. Um, And it does take a a really interesting uh, turn, I think, that film, and the the way that we sort of work our way through her trajectory to try and chase down, essentially, the the men who raped her. Um, a number of years ago, uh, and who, and one of whom is now the father of her child. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed that, and I, I loved that. Uh, you might remember that sequence where she just comes across the the area, the wood where she had been raped, and there is this kind of great sort of sense of of the present and the and the past, yeah. come, like clashing together uh, in this incredibly beautiful way. So I found that one super satisfying. Um, and, and, and so, which is why I was a little bit surprised. Like, first film, wow, I'm loving this, and, and sitting down to Barbarian, I'm like, eh, yeah, maybe not so much.
2: I, th- I think with Catalan Varga, as you say, the there's a big difference in terms of the way the landscape works in, in that it's a real character and the compositions are broad and we're getting a big sweeping panorama, which is both it's you know it's the film opens up at that point but it also she talks about how the landscape is a part of her psyche because it's associated with the trauma of the inciting incident in the film and yeah. the other two films you you're both completely right they are so enclosed and so hermetic and it's this artificial world that is reflected in the formal choices that Strickland makes in in knitting together the film so yeah. they 're very different in that way yeah and and I find that fascinating the way that they work in different ways
1: yeah in, in du Duke, Duke, uh, Duke of burgundy, burgundy there's a whole thing about reducing nature to you know the the, the insects yes yeah. to the display boards and the lectures they attend yeah. with this kind of um microscopic examination of the habits of different insects and so on.
2: Apparently a homage to Stan Brakhage. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, was so, like, yeah. I, I wasn't thinking of that when I was watching it, I only yeah. reading afterwards, but yeah. yeah.
0: Um, that whole pastoral thing, it's worth mentioning, there's a, a really great um, article in the dossier by uh, Henri de Corinth, um, and he's got a whole thing on on the kind of pastoral landscapes um, of uh, of Peter Strickland, so that's absolutely one that you want to chase down. Um, the new film, which we haven't seen, In Fabric, um, you know, is, is this the thing where, like Barbarian, I'm like, this sounds like totally me, and I get in there and maybe I'm not so keen, but In Fabric does sound really intriguing. It sounds like some sort of combination between a, a sort of horror film and the earrings of Madame or
2: something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. I'm and, sold.
0: And, and so it's, it is about a kind of deadly dress that sort of passes from person mm. to person and and again i'm telling you please don't let me down i really love the sound of that and and we will talk about miff shortly but but that does sound like a film that that is right up my alley i'm very keen yes um, to check that out all right so that's uh peter strickland uh so as i've said uh, certainly in fabric he's screening at miff uh, and I believe Alexandra Helen Nicholas is going to be uh, conducting an interview with Strickland, who's a guest at the festival. Uh, and the festival gets underway uh, the 1st of August. Uh, so if you are in Melbourne or in Australia, that might be something that you might want to chase down. Uh, and if you're in other territories, you might have already seen it already because we might be a little bit behind. Um, but even if you know, maybe we're a little bit mixed on his, his films, he's certainly an interesting filmmaker to play around with. Um, so if you want to leave any comments about our discussion about Peter Strickland, just head to our uh, Facebook page at facebook.com slash of Cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread.
3: Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. So we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the cost of keeping sensitive cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you were to subscribe to the higher level, you get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Census Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Census, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work that they do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Census Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring you the journal throughout your film year.
0: The Melbourne International Film Festival has rolled around again for its 67th year, now in the capable hands of Al Costa, the new artistic director. The festival has a director focus on Peter Strickland, as we've already discussed, but it also has retrospectives on Penelope Spheris, and Nieszka Holland. Um, It's got a a range of films that have come direct from Cannes uh, because, obviously, Australian Film Festival, there's a really great selection of new Australian cinema that is featured. Uh, Also includes uh, Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook, a film called The Nightingale, which um, I'm actually really keen to see. Um, And there's also a a really great selection of documentaries, of uh, horror movies in the night shift section, and a lot of uh, music-focused documentaries as well. We've got a whole stack of those. So there's a great range uh, that is on offer for the festival, which starts on the 1st of August and runs for a couple of weeks. Um, And so what we thought we might do is just toss out a couple of things that we're really interested in chasing down, whether it's a film or a talk or a spotlight, uh, and uh, just have a look at what's on offer for the festival for 2019. So Dan... Head of your list, what's the thing that you absolutely are not
1: going to miss? Uh, It is a particularly strong program this year, I agree. Yeah, I was having a flip through it, and um, there's actually a lot of things (laughs) I don't want to miss. But I just um, have pulled out, as you know, uh, I've got a particular interest in Chinese cinema. So I pulled out, um, and there's a very good range of Chinese films, actually, screening this year. Uh, So there's a new film. I was interested to see there's a new film by Diao Inan, um, who's the director that made a film called Black Coal Thin Ice which was at MIF in 2015, I think, um, and it won uh, Best Film at Berlin in 2014. And that was a really great uh, kind of noirish crime um, thriller, I guess. Um, and his new film, Wild Goose Lake, um, is screening at MIF this year. It sounds like it's in quite a similar vein. So I really enjoyed uh, Black Hole, in Ice, so I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Um, there's also another film by the director, Wen... uh, called Dying to Survive, which was a huge hit in China uh, last year, in 2018. It was actually the, I think it was the highest-grossing, or certainly one of the highest-grossing films in China. Um, It stars the comic um, actor Xu Zhang, who's very well-known in China, who starred in and directed a film called Lost in Thailand back in 2012, which was, again, huge in China. Um, Wasn't um, seen so much outside of China. Um, but so he stars in this new film, Dying to Survive. Um, and I'm yeah curious to see what that's like because it was such a big commercial <laughs> hit. Um, there's also a new documentary by Wang Nanfu called One Child Nation. Um, she made a film called Hooligan Sparrow a couple of years ago. Did you see that oh, one, Tim? I see that. Um, it's screened here, I think, at the Human Rights Festival. Oh, right. And that was a really, I thought that was fantastic actually, that documentary. It was um, a film that started off being about, um, there was a particular uh, former sex worker who had become a kind of activist and advocate for sex workers in China, um, and Wang Nanfu wanted to make a documentary about her, and her online handle um, was Hooligan Sparrow, hence the name of the the film. So she starts making this documentary um, about this woman, and in the process of doing that, she attracts the attention of state security, and it becomes this film about the attempts of state security to stop her making this documentary, and it's actually quite frightening. Um, the what she's kind of put through um, in the course of making yeah, this it film. Great. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, it's really, and it's got I know a lot of the stuff that we loved him in the documentary form about that kind of you know reflective. Um, the process of making the film is kind of the substance of the film and the unpredictability. Um, of that particular kind of mode of documentary making. So I'm curious to see what her new film is like um, it's won several awards internationally it won um, a major award at Sundance uh, last year I think and um, as you'd expect from the name One Child Nation it's about the impact of uh, China's one child policy um, which I understand has had a particular impact on her family as well so it's got that kind of personal element again. She's a very young filmmaker as well I think she's Um, early 30s yeah. Yeah. so she made Hooligan Sparrow when she was in her 20s so yeah she's quite remarkable talent so that's one to look out for and the last one um, I was just going to highlight was um, a new film from, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, um, Pima Tseden, who's a Tibetan filmmaker, Um, he made a film called Talo, uh, which was at MIF in 2016, which I really loved Uh, and he made a film back in 2007 called The Search um, which was a very kind of Kimastari uh, um, kind of film about this long um, road journey in Tibet. And it's mainly filmed from the, from a car. And um, yeah, I really loved that one. So he's got a new film called Jimpa. And he, you know, there's not many Tibetan filmmakers um, active in China. Uh, for one of the obvious reasons is it's an incredibly kind of sensitive culture and kind of area to be making films about so the fact that he's been able to navigate making films which are very much about Tibet um, and have these films some of them actually released in China is quite remarkable and he he treads a kind of very fine line between talking about his society and surviving as a filmmaker so I'm curious to see what his new film is like as well
2: I sound good. Tim, what have you got? Um, I've just got a couple of recommendations or a couple, well, I don't know if they're recommendations because I haven't seen them, but a couple of <laughs> films that I'm interested in seeing. Um, the first is La Flor, um, which is, uh, weighs in at a solid, I think it's 14 and a half hours. So it's a bit of a film event. Don't sigh, Mark. Um, and uh, the the director's name is Mariano Linas, and it's not surprisingly the longest Argentinian film on record um but uh, it, uh my interest has been piqued because i read saw this on a bunch of uh, top 10 lists last year and uh it's been created as a vehicle for uh, i think four actresses from a buenos aires uh, theatrical troupe and it's uh going to be shown in three parts at myth uh, there's six episodes constituting the the nearly 15 hours so i suppose it's what a bit under three hours each and the long
1: intermission there
2: i I understand that in the three uh sessions there will be an intermission in each so and it's happening over the i think it's the final friday evening and the saturday morning and the sunday morning of the last weekend of the festival uh and uh, the what little I've read about it talks about about the way it crosses genres and employs uh, you know a variety of narrative strategies. And you know, there's been some fulsome praise for it in things I've read, Mark. So well, you know, well, I was about
0: to say, if you're doing 14 hours, I think you've got the time to do
2: it. I'm, well, that's true, but I'm I'm up, <laughs> I'm up for the challenge. And, and, we, and we,
0: is it is it a film or is it a like structured as a kind of episodic? TV well, f- show type. F- of from
2: thing. what I understand, it's it's created as as a film, and, right? And but even though they talk about six episodes, but I stand to be corrected on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing that I won't be watching, but is similar to this, and we were just talking about it earlier, is that the festival is also in a similar vein for sort of hardcore cinephiles is also showing uh, Tarr's Satan Tango, which is. Uh, a film that was released in nineteen ninety four, and it's the twenty fifth anniversary. So I'd, I'd recommend if people haven't seen that that they and they uh, feel adventurous or would describe themselves as a true cinephile that they go and see that film. I can't um, believe
1: it's twenty five years old. Already. Yeah,
2: I can't either. I mean, I I had I wasn't sure if I if it had. I, I presumed it probably had shown in Melbourne or Australia, but I saw this. I was living in London for most of the nineties and early two thousands, and I saw it at the NFT in London in around two thousand. So anyway uh, anybody who hasn't it's it's worth going to that's for sure um, the other recommendation I had was um, uh, big Arn's uh, long day's journey into night now uh, you might have something to say about this uh, Dan but uh, I think I might have seen Kylie Blues with you about two or three years ago when it showed mm. a myth. Uh, and I have a friend who lives in uh, Shanghai who told me this was marketed as a great date film. It was released over yeah, the it was Christmas It was New marketed Year as a romantic Yeah, and I think <laughs> uh, there was a film. few quizzical looks, you know, shortly into the film and maybe a few walkouts and a big drop-off in the box office after an initial surge from what, I, from what he told me anyway. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've got anything, any more sort of intel on this film that you can share with us.
1: Uh, Well, I had just heard the same thing, that it was initially marketed as a kind of romantic film and um, based on Kylie Blues, (laughs) if people were going in (laughs) expecting a kind of romantic Friday night after work film, they might have been um, somewhat disappointed. But I I think we both loved Kylie Blues uh, when we saw it. He's a filmmaker that um, I think you probably either love or hate. Um, I know people who saw Kylie Blues who also hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he's got a very particular meditative kind of approach to the form. Um, if you're looking for, you know, a strong plot-driven film, you're not going to get that uh, with else. his work. Yeah. And this this new film sounds similar. Um, it's got the intriguing aspect, the new one, that it's half, I understand, in 3D. Um, so it'll be yes. very interesting to see what he does with that. The other thing that I'm interested in about this film is it stars the great Tang Wei, um, who's one of my favourite Chinese actresses, um, best known outside of China, uh, for Lust Caution, um, the Young Lee film, which was, what, about 10 years ago yeah. now, which I think she was absolutely fantastic yeah, in, and that nice. was her debut uh, on screen, actually, and she copped a lot of flack for that film from the authorities in China, was basically prevented from working for a few years, but made a few films in Hong Kong, um, has mostly been in pretty trashy films um, since Last <laughs> Caution, unfortunately. She was in a film called um, Finding Mr. Right a couple of years ago, which was a big hit in China, but... Oh, my God, it's a dreadful film. Um, But, anyway, more powerful. She's been in a whole series of kind of commercial films. But it's interesting to see her working um, with a more interesting director again. Um, And I'm very curious to see how he uses um, a talent like her, because I think she is a talent who's been seriously underutilised in um, recent years. Indeed. Looking forward to that.
0: And I'm sort of uh, looking forward to... I hope I get to them, but I probably... Um, I might have missed some of the the boat for the opening film, the opening night film, um, which is a film called The Australian Dream. It's a documentary uh, from Daniel Gordon. Uh, and it's looking at the career of um, an Indigenous AFL, uh, like Australian rules football uh, player by the name of Adam Goodes. Um, there was recently a, another documentary that screened on um, public access TV uh, in Australia, what was it, last week?
2: Did you yeah, guys Yeah, it was see only that? the last week or two. Yeah, yeah the final, it, the yeah, final quarter? Yeah.
0: Uh, and this is a second documentary on goods, who um, was an incredible football player, um, had an incredible career, uh, and then through a series of events uh, as you know, a very high-profile, prominent uh, Indigenous uh, sportsman, then started to attract the ire of... Um, people in the media and in uh, the the public which meant that towards the end of his career and he essentially did kind of give up football because of the terrible abuse that he was copying meant that every time he you know, kicked a kicked the ball got any kind of possession of the ball during the game the entire crowd would boo uh, and so you know it, it, one of the great tragedies of the you know the the racism within Australia but not just you know the kind of um Behavior of the crowd, but uh, also the the complicity of the media to kind of wind up this um, attack on him as an Indigenous man who was standing up against the racism that he was experiencing. Um, so this film, The Australian Dream, um, does, as I understand, feature a, a range of interviews um, across a number of the, the key players, including Goods. Uh, and I watched the final quarter, and you know I'm going to be honest, I kind of don't give a toss about Australian rules football. Um, You know, enjoy it, but don't follow it. Uh, And I found that documentary really compelling and incredibly upsetting. I mean, I think we all remember when all that stuff was going on. And I don't follow football, but I knew that there was a thing happening against him. And it was appalling. Um, And certainly a lot of the, as I say, a lot of the media were just kind of diving in on him as if... Like it was open season to ha- have a go at this man. This well, documentary. The way it was
1: treated like there was a debate around whether yeah. he was actually at fault.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it was yes. We we actually think that maybe the the racist abuse that he's copying is caused by him. Yeah. yeah. He incited
2: it. Yeah. Yes,
0: because because he should just shut up. That's, that's what racism. people were saying. That's yeah.
2: not what I say. Yeah. No, really? that's, no,
0: that's exactly right. <laughs> mm. um, no, so cool. a really interesting. Uh, I think it'll be a really interesting documentary. I know. Again, like listen to the non-sportsman. Um, talking about people who do sports, I think it's a thing. Um, it's not a thing that I do, but there is some uh, Australian uh, sportsman, NBA player. I want ben Sims to say. Is, ben has Simmons has gone
2: and produced it, so it yeah, might get an overseas exactly. release. Exactly.
0: So, so he's certainly behind it, and is is um, getting some attention towards this film. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that because, you know, as somebody who, as I say, I don't really care that much about Australian rules football. I'm really kind of interested to see this documentary. A couple of other things very quickly. Um, each year, they run MIF runs a critics' campus. Um, Dan, you were a mentor one year, were you? I was, yeah, a couple of there years you know. ago. Yep. Um, and uh, one of the mentors this year, in fact, is another friend of the podcast and another editor at Senses of Cinema. Uh, Cesar Alburon Torres is one of the the mentors this year. Um, it is the the uh, the program where we get around about ten. Uh, young, emerging film writers, and they are mentored by a range of critics. Uh, this year, not only Cesar, but Kay Austin Collins, who I think writes for Variety, Leslie Chow has come over, uh, Philippa Hawker is one of the um, uh, one of the mentors, Ellen Bittencourt is also another, uh, and it's just a, a really tremendous program uh, for young writers to get involved in the festival and start producing some incredible writing. So some of that may, we hope, end up on Senses of Cinema. There'll also be the MIF blog that people could read if they wish, uh, and that will include um, write-ups on the festival on specific films as well as interviews with some of the guests for the festival. So I would encourage people to check that out. Critics Campus has been a really incredible uh, element to uh, MIF for a number of years now, so great to see that continuing on. The other thing that I'm really interested in is Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth has come out. Um, and he's actually uh, composed music to a range of uh, the experimental films of Maya Derin. Um So I, I can't remember which one specifically uh, screening, but I know Meshes is playing it's Meshes,
2: at, at, land, at Land and Rituals and Transfiguration.
0: Ritual, yeah, that's it, yeah. Uh, and so uh, he's going to come out and essentially perform to those films. I do. He's going
1: to play live, is he? Yeah, he is, wow. isn't he? Yeah. Okay. Um,
0: and he's doing a few Q and A's and stuff as well. Yes. I think so. Uh, terrific to have him out there, and would love to just sit down and watch some of those films, which you know, I do really. I'm very fond of just with with Thurston Moore in the room, playing up something amazing. I do just also, as I said it in the intro, but I really want to see the Nightingale. Mm. I did really love the Bubba Um and the Nightingale. From everything I've heard, is really freaking intense. Uh, it's a bit of a ruckus, Sydney, and I, I believe it, it did. <laughs> like people are kind of killing over in the aisles over it. So if People are vomiting. I'm there. <laughs> um, this is, again, a bit like kind of a, a sound kind of focused jello. I want the film where people are passing out. Um, so, yeah, really, really keen to see that film. Um, she's a, a really interesting filmmaker, and so I'm very keen to see her, her follow-up. So that's just a, a quick whip around of where we're at in terms of myth. There, of course, are m- many, many more things. I think Bruce Beresford's coming out to do some q and so that could be really interesting. Um Uh, So, a lot of things for for people to to check out. So, you know, I know that if you're not living in Australia, that can be a little bit difficult, but you can live vicariously through us if you wish. I would imagine in the next pod, both Kirsten and I will have a bit of a chat about the things that we've seen at the festival. Um, But that should at least give you a bit of a taster for the festival, which, as I said, starts on the 1st of August uh, here in Melbourne. Um, So... If you have any recommendations for us, things that we've missed out, by all means, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash of Cinema, and leave your suggestions for us there. So to close out each show, we always want to offer up one little gem that we've encountered over the last month that we can recommend to people who are listening into the pod um, just to kind of make your coming month a little bit more joyous. Tim... You've encountered something amazing. What brought you joy? I don't mean to go all Marie Kondo on you. Um, but but what, what, sparked brought, joy, yeah, yeah. what sparked joy in you?
2: Uh, what sparked joy in me was um, uh, a film that I saw last week at the Melbourne Cinematheque that I have seen previously, but it's still always worth mentioning because it's better than any recent release I've seen, which was um, Ernst Lubitsch's uh, Trouble in Paradise uh and excuse me if i say they don't make them like that anymore but here's a rom-com that you know was around before the term was coined 50 years before the term was coined and uh it's such a so beautifully light in touch and yet so profound in terms of you know love and money and exploitation and the dialogue is amazing the uh chemistry between the stars the the sort of love triangle at the center of it is amazing we're in that sort of pre-code Hollywood period immediately before the code was being enforced where, um, you know, we can be sophisticated in relation to relations between men and women uh, and also the production design and sets are amazing, as you would expect. Everything about it is fantastic. If I can just go a brick bat in contrast to that, <laughs> the other most recent um, film that I have seen um, that's uh, first release was uh, the film directed by uh, Danny Boyle, and uh, scripted by Richard Curtis, which is yesterday, which to me represents the high point in a bad way of this commodification of um, the back catalogue of classic rock or you know uh, baby boomer type music. After the Queen and Elton John films that have come out recently, and I was in holiday looking for a family film. I went in with low expectations, and they were met. I have to say, <laughs> this is like you know, leaden plotting. Plotting dialogue um, and plausible you, romance, no story, chemistry.
1: Because I've seen the posters for it and the Beatles thing caught my eye because, you know, big Beatles. Well, I don't, brain,
2: want, to, I don't but, want to talk about it too much, uh, but the, the story is, um, well, not the, the, the premise is that uh, there's a break in, in the world, all over the world in uh, something happens and the Beatles and all trace of them are lost except for one Person in England who is hit by a bus, and he can remember the Beatles, and he's a, a failed or aspiring songside singer-songwriter who's largely failing in his attempts to go professional. Um, and that's the setup. And then, so then he realizes he can use and exploit that bad catalog to promote himself, promote the songs, of course, because the Beatles are great, but also to um, to become famous and kickstart his musical career. And that's the way it works out. Sounds like a very convincing plot, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Anyway, that's the, that's the least of the problem. That's the least of the problems in as a lot of ways. As soon as Dan was like, "I'm in." <laughs> well, I know he's a big Beatles man, but uh, and I don't, you know, we, we, we shouldn't focus too much on that. But I just thought it, uh, it's it was the contrast between the two of the more recent yeah. films I've seen would be marketed. Well, no, obviously, Trouble in Paradise wasn't marketed as a rom com, but yeah. Um, the distinction between them—they're uh, uh, at opposite ends, opposite ends of the spectrum, completely.
1: So between that and the uh, B-gone film, you've got a bit of a rom-com. <laughs> <thing going. laughs> I have, but again, it's a different type of rom-com. Dan, what have you got for us? Um, well, I'm also going to be a crusty um, old effer and um, <laughs> point to some old films that are showing. I noticed um, there's the Palace uh, chain here in Melbourne has a music on film yeah. festival coming up. Um, which, unfortunately, is on at the same time as Miff, um, which is a bit that inconvenient. Is terrible yeah, programming. Yeah, but they are showing some fantastic films, um, including The Last Waltz, um, which I know you'll love, Mark, because it features Bob Dylan. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm still looking forward to our bonus. But yeah, we'll um, The Last Waltz, it, um, for those not familiar with it, is basically a concert film, also by Martin Scorsese, um, which captures the last performance of the band, um, who worked on and off with Dylan, of course, for many years, as well as having their own um, career. Uh, but it really is an incredible film. I think you'd agree with that, I Tim. Agree with like that. it's, yep. it is widely regarded as one of the greatest concert films um, ever shot. And if you've ever wondered why, you know, uh, people who love the band rave about the band, go and see that film, and I think you'll be convinced. Um, it's, yeah, a remarkable um, piece of work. And it also features, um, because it was their last concert, it was a farewell concert in 76,
2: I think. I think it's 76. Something like that. Yeah.
1: Um, it features a whole string of guests that they bring on, including Dylan, but there's many other. Muddy Waters is in there. Yeah. Um, Joni Mitchell. Neil Young yep. appears in there. There's a whole string of you know, people at the peak of their career in the mid-70s um, come on and, and work with the band, so I highly recommend. And seeing it in a cinema on a good sound system... Um, which I've seen once before, many years ago, is just yeah amazing. Uh, they're also showing um, Control, the film about Ian Curtis, yeah. which is also a That's great piece terrific. of work, yes. I think. Yeah. Um, film biopics can often be pretty ordinary, as you were alluding to before, Tim, but Control is definitely one of the more interesting um, biopics about uh, Ian Curtis and Joy Division. And uh, 20,000... Uh, Days on Earth is also in there, The Nick Cave, okay. which many people would have seen, but I also really enjoyed um, that's in there. And there's a whole range of other films as well. So if you've got time um, while Miff is on <laughs> just, and you're a music fan, there's definitely some great music on films, pics there showing um, at various locations in Melbourne, it's the Palace chain. Great. And I've got something
0: um, really short. I mean, you know, Satan Tango might go for 80,000 hours and um, it not what I'm offering isn't like 14 hours of Argentinian um, genre play. Um, but what I am giving you is a web series that runs like has about six episodes I think and each episode's about five minutes. So this sounds perfect
2: in today's time for me. pressured environment. That's
0: exactly right. It's per- I know it, it it's no kind of 14 hour Argentinian epic. Um, but it is epic in its own way. It's called Sarah's Channel. Um, It is uh, written and performed by uh, Claudia O'Doherty, who's an Australian comedian. Um, People internationally might know her if you watch the the sort of rom-com sitcom uh, show Love. uh, That was... Wasn't that... I think it was... The showrunner was Judd Apatow, I think. She was... um, Oh, I've now forgotten her name. Uh, Gillian Jacobs uh, roommate in that in that sitcom. So, Claudio O'Doherty has now done this thing called Sarah's Channel. She plays Sarah. She has a channel. Uh, the premise is that there has been sort of some kind of incredible apocalypse. The world has been destroyed. She is living in a subterranean subspace, sort of surrounded by with the guy from Parasite. <laughs> probably. With a, they may as well be, because they are indeed all kind of mutant freaks um, who are, she shares this cave with. But um, she also wants to maintain her position as a very important uh, social media influencer. Uh, and so she presents a basically a kind of YouTube um uh, tutorial on beauty um and so it's a kind of riff on those kind of uh, you know i'm I, today's episodes what's in my handbag and you know like oh look it's a dismembered limb and um so that there is this kind of really great uh fun uh, approach to this idea of of poking a bit of fun at the the kind of Instagram influencer culture and the kind of here are my beauty tips kind of YouTube clips, and at the same time. It is a kind of really interesting uh, comedic premise of her being surrounded by mutants, clearly trapped underground. She doesn't remember what the what above ground is anymore um, or barely remembers it anymore. And she's still trying to maintain that sense of normality that she had when she was a kid. Um, it's super short. Like I said, I think it's about half a dozen episodes. They're each about five minutes each. Um, the wonderful thing is that it does, over that space of time, does have a little kind of narrative arc as well, which is kind of fun. I think there's going to be Sarah's Channel 2. It looks like it's, it's prepping for a sequel. I'm there for it. Claudio O'Doherty is really good fun. Um, it's available on iview if you're in Australia. And if you're not in Australia, get yourself a VPN. Uh, go to iview and disguise yourself as an Australian um, just to, to check out Sarah's Channel. Anyway, thanks for joining us this month for the Senses of Cinema podcast. And thanks to the wonderful Tim O'Farrell, the amazing Dan Edwards. I can't remember whether I've mixed up your adjectives, but you're both awesome. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining me this month on the podcast. Thanks also to our technical producer, um, the brilliant Troy Morey, who is slowly bit by bit replacing everyone on this podcast with members of his own family. (laughs) Um, Thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Sensors of Cinema podcast, and we will speak with you again next month.